All right, we're continuing together our study in chapter 8 of our book, From the Garden of Eden to the Glory of Heaven. And having dealt last time with um, the, um, uh, the, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant under the new covenant, uh, last week we began a study of the old covenant. So we spent several weeks looking at the Abrahamic covenant and now we're looking at the Old Covenant. And what we said regarding the Old Covenant is that God established this covenant as a means of revealing important aspects of his character and for declaring key components of his will and commandments for his people. Because if the Old Covenant is anything, it is a revelation of the law of God. And it's a revelation of the character of God. And so it reveals who God is, what he's like, and it also reveals what his will is, that is, what he wants us to do. And so it's a very important covenant. Um, You'll notice that it goes from Exodus chapter 19 all the way to the end of Malachi. And so this covenant covers a huge period of biblical history and a huge period of the lives of the covenant community of the people of God. And so it's an exceedingly important covenant and it is important that we understand it because as we understand it, then we'll be able to rightly interpret the Old Testament. And so um, it, uh, it's the uh, controlling covenant, if you will, for the community life Uh, and the individual behavior of the people of God for thousands and thousands of years, all right? So last time, by way of review, then, we talked about the roots of the Old Covenant, and we said that the Old Covenant was rooted in and grew out of the Abrahamic Covenant. And so um, we um, saw that in our memory verse today. Where is Israel? She's down in Egypt. She's now enslaved to Pharaoh. And uh, it's been 400 years, and Israel is groaning under the dreadful uh, oppression of that slavery. And um, they were groaning to God, and God heard their groaning. And what did God do? He remembered his covenant that he had made with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and had respect unto them because of that covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And thus, he began to work a deliverance for them out of Egypt um, through the person of Moses in order to fulfill the uh, promises he had made in the Abrahamic covenant. And so we see this tremendous redemption and salvation wrought for Israel on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant. And so the Abrahamic covenant promises redemption, and God supplies redemption on the basis of its terms and promises. And so we see that God's redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt, just like his rescue of Noah's family from the flood, foreshadows the third and great deliverance of Scripture 
our salvation from sin by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these two major events of the Old Testament, the flood and the exodus, are examples which God has built into the history of mankind to prepare the way for the greatest deliverance of all, the deliverance of souls from sin. In fact, these two major deliverances, the rescue from death and destruction that was achieved in the flood, and the deliverance from bondage and slavery that was achieved in the exodus, are the very categories within which our salvation from sin is couched. When we're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, what are we saved from? We're saved from death and destruction. We are saved from bondage and slavery to sin and Satan. And so these two great physical deliverances are pictures of the spiritual deliverance that Christ has wrought for us. Now, we then last time begin to talk about the content of the covenant. And this brings us to our memory verse today. In uh, Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, God says to this covenant community that he's now redeemed out of Egypt. And he says to them, I'm going to make another covenant with you. And this covenant that I'm going to make with you is going to involve the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And so um, what we see is that God makes a covenant with the physical seed of Abraham. And in this old covenant and through it and by means of it, God fulfills his promises to Israel of a seed and of a land and of blessing. Um, but the terms in particular are conditional terms. He says, now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. And so we talked about the fact that this covenant, uh, distinct from the other covenants, the other five covenants, the other four covenants that we're studying, uh, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the New, those are all unconditional covenants. And what's interesting is that those covenants are the means whereby God saves his people. The old covenant is not unconditional. It is conditional. It has an if-then clause in it. God says, if you do something, I'll do something. Well, thank God our salvation isn't based on an if-then clause. If you do this, I'll do that. Because we would never be able to perform. And that's why fault was found with the old covenant. That's why it was eventually done away with because one of the parties couldn't perform, namely us. The other thing that we understand about this covenant is this is not a covenant of salvation. Nobody gets saved through or by the old covenant. It's not a means of salvation. It's a means of regulating the life of the covenant community and regulating the blessing that flows to that covenant community based on how they live that life. And the whole purpose of it was to restrain sin, to keep the community separate from the communities around them, keep them pure, so that 
uh, when the day came that Messiah was to be born in the fullness of time, that there would be a unique, separate, defined community through whom he would come. So the if of the covenant is that you need to keep my laws. You need to obey my voice. Our memory verse says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant. And God's voice was his law. And he had a civil law by which the civil life of the nation was to be governed. He had a ceremonial law by which the religious life of the nation was to be governed. And he had a moral law by which the moral behavior of the nation was to be governed. And so uh, the obedience that he required was a general national obedience. If, If the nation as a whole... Now, to be sure, there were individuals that were always going to be breaking these things. But he's saying, if you as a nation as a whole keep these things, then I will bless the nation as a whole. So the covenant wasn't made with uh, particular people so much as it was made with the covenant community as a whole. Now, what God promised in the covenant are three things. He promised uh, not salvation, as I said, but he promised first that God would make them a special treasure to him above all people. Notice he says, you shall be a peculiar treasure. If something is peculiar, that means it's unique. That means it's special. That means there's nothing else like it. Um, We generally use the term peculiar in a derogatory way. We say, my, isn't he a peculiar fellow? Right? What do we mean by that? We mean there's nobody else like him. He stands out like a sore thumb. He's a unique specimen. That's generally what we mean. But when the Bible uses the term peculiar, it means special, unique, um, irreplaceable possession. Okay? And and so uh, the Bible very frequently speaks about us being uh, a peculiar people to God a people that is unique and special uh, to him. And so he promises that we will be a special treasure to him above all people. That is, the nation of Israel was going to, if you will, stand head and shoulders above all the nations around them. They would have a unique status and relationship to God. That they would be um, his crown jewel in the earth. They would be the planet's most beloved people. They would be uh, the ones to whom God had special respect. It's kind of like you people, many of you who are married, you've got kids. And those kids are special to you above all the other children that exist, right? Okay? They're your kids. And yeah, there's lots of kids out there and kids are okay, but my kids are my peculiar treasure. And that's what God was saying about Israel. The second thing he promised them is not only would they be in a place of of unique privilege and blessing and relationship to him, but that secondly, he says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And when Israel came out of Egypt, what were they? They were a, were a, a, a ragtag bunch of slaves is what they were. And he takes this bunch of slaves and he forms them into a kingdom. And then he says regarding all the people in this kingdom that they are going to be a worshiping people, a kingdom of priests, a people 
through whom I will relate to the rest of the earth. And so what did God do when He wanted to speak to the whole world? He spoke to them through Israel. And uh, when the world wanted to worship, how did they need to worship? They needed to come and become Jews and worship through Israel at the temple. And so uh, the nation of Israel, as it were, were going to be uh, the mediator between God and the rest of the world. And so if God had something to say to the world, he sent prophets to Israel. And if the world ever wanted to have anything to do with God, like Ruth, they had to come to Israel and they had to um, approach God through her. And so uh, they were a special body whose primary function was to worship God, to glorify God, and to be a mediator between God and the rest of the world. Then the third thing that he promised them is not only that they would be uh, the planet's most beloved people, and not only would they be uh, the people whose primary function was to worship God and glorify Him among all the nations of the earth, but the third thing that He promised them is that they would be a holy nation. And what that means is that their moral behavior and their moral standards would be unique and different from all the nations around them. And because of this unique law they had, the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law, <clears throat> they would have a completely different culture than the cultures around them. Listen to me. God was not a multiculturalist. <laughs> he didn't say, all cultures are equal and no culture is any better than any other culture. No, what God said on no uncertain terms is that the culture that I'm going to create in Israel is going to be completely separate and different from all the nations around them, and it's going to be better. And so, the Ten Commandments, in essence, are what separated Israel morally from the pagan nations. The civil laws separated them culturally and socially as a people who were set apart from the world around them. And so Israel was marked as a people who were separated from sin in distinction from the rest of the world who was just buried in it. And you know, that's one of the reasons why America has advanced so far above all the nations of the earth, not because we're under some covenant relationship with God, but simply because we have, of all the nations on the earth, more than any of the rest of them, over our history, obeyed the laws of God. And as a result, our culture has prospered, while cultures around us haven't done as well. On the whole, Western civilization has done far better than Eastern civilization and pagan civilization because we have uh, followed the laws of God more. Uh, if therefore you will obey my voice indeed, then you'll be a better nation than the nations around you. And while that was a covenant promise God made to Israel, and we have no such covenant promise to America, nevertheless, the general principle still obtains. And the general principle is that those who obey God's laws are going to know blessing above those who don't. Therefore, all cultures aren't equal. The cultures that obey God's laws more are better than 
the cultures that obey God's laws less. And so what we ought to do as a people is define what our culture is. We're a people who obey the laws of God. And then when we bring people into our culture, like immigrants, they should be brought into conformity with that cultural vision and that cultural practice. And then they can actually be a cultural blessing. But when you bring in people who actually stand in defiance of a culture of obedience to God and actively work to undermine that culture, then they are destructive and not constructive. And that's one of the reasons why Europe is going down is because they uh, never could or they had forgotten uh, what their culture was. And if they couldn't define what it was, they certainly couldn't defend it. And they certainly couldn't incorporate other people into it. And so other people bring their cultures and they live in their little enclaves. And instead of having a national culture, what you have is a nation full of tribal groups. And so the Buddhists are over here and, and, and the Muslims are over here and the anarchists are over here and the so-called Christians are over here. And um, as a result, you have tremendous fragmentation because there's no common national cohesiveness to keep everyone together. And that's what we used to have as a nation is a very clear common cultural consensus that this is what defines us as a people. And what defines us as a people is what? We are one nation under God and that God is the Christian God. Amen. And when we lost that and we gave that up and we have our president standing up before the Egyptian parliament saying, America isn't and never has been a Christian nation. Well then pray tell, what is our cultural identity? Well, it's liberty and justice for all. What constitutes liberty and justice? You have to define that, and you can only define that religiously. This is right, that's wrong, that's morality, that's religion. Or they can say it's um, uh, the pursuit of happiness. What constitutes happiness? Slaughtering children? Blowing up buses of, of, of women and children because... Uh, you think it'll promote you to heaven and the 72 virgins? Is that happiness? Can I pursue happiness that way? You've got to define these things. And you've got to say, well, if this is what life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness is, and this is what the God is that we're under, then by definition you're excluding things that are contrary to that and saying we don't want those things. We will not allow those things into our culture. And if the people who believe those things come into our culture, they're going to have to abandon their beliefs and embrace ours. And you see, that's what Ruth did. You remember in the book of Ruth, when, when, when she came with Naomi, she says, your God will be my God, your people will be my people, and where you go, I will go. And what Ruth was saying is that as a Moabitess, she was going to come into the old covenant community culture and blend with it, not undermine it. Adopt it, not try to change it. And that's how... People can grow, cultures can grow through immigration and not be completely destroyed. So what you have here is a national covenant, a cultural covenant. A covenant which defines a people. It defines them in terms of the fact that they're special to God. They're special 
worshipers of God and mediators between God and the nations around them. And they are a people who are marked by a unique pattern of moral behavior that constitutes holiness before the Lord as they obey the civil, ceremonial, and moral laws that God has set before them. Now, did Israel fulfill the terms of this covenant? Did they obey God's voice and did they keep God's covenant? And the answer is, yes, sometimes they did. Nationally, sometimes they did. And those were the periods when they had tremendous national blessing. And there were two fundamental periods in which that occurred. One was under Joshua, when they went in and they conquered the land and they obeyed God. And of course, they had a few foul-ups, but in the main... Uh, they obeyed God. Remember, Achan uh, created a little bit of trouble and then they made that um, uh, covenant with the Gibeonites that they shouldn't have made. Uh, but by and large, they, they did a good job. They obeyed God. And it says in the book of Judges that uh, the children of Israel obeyed God all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua and they did good. Now, then they started disobeying God in the book of Judges and, and we see this cycle of uh, obedience, blessing, complacency, um, apostasy, judgment, repentance, restoration, blessing, and then it goes over again. And that cycle occurred again and again. Well, eventually, God sent um, David, Solomon, I I mean, pardon me, Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. Okay, now once again under Solomon, the nation obeyed God. Under David and Solomon, the nation obeyed God. And as a result, the nation knew tremendous blessing from God. And during that time, uh, the the children of Israel were a peculiar treasure to God above all people. They were a kingdom of priests and they were a holy nation. And so we read, for example, in 1 Kings 8 and verse 56, where Solomon is praying in relationship to God's covenant promises, the old covenant. Okay. In fact, turn in your Bibles there, 1 Kings 8. Solomon has built the temple that David planned, but God, remember God said to David, you can't build it because you're a man of war. And so Solomon built it with all the stuff, all the materials that David had gathered. And the, the temple has been built now, and Solomon is dedicating the temple. And um, he's blessing the Lord uh, for his faithfulness. And notice, if you will, 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse um, 56. We'll start out at verse 55, 1 Kings 8, 55. And he, Solomon, stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice, saying, and now he's, he's, he's praying, he's got his hands spread to heaven. He says, Blessed be the Lord that has given rest unto his people Israel according to all that he promised. There is not failed one word of all his good promise, now notice, which he promised by the hand of of Moses, his servant. Now, what he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant, was the old covenant. 
Moses, you remember, was the mediator between Israel and God. And so what this text says is that God kept his side of the old covenant. And in this prayer, this is a fascinating prayer and, and, and chapter. Uh, I would I'd strongly encourage you, you know, read 1 Kings 8 today. Um, it's an amazing chapter. And, and basically what Solomon does is he recognizes in this prayer, you know what? God has been completely faithful to what he promised in the old covenant. We, on the other hand, have had our ups and downs. And he even forecasted in this prayer that Israel would have its downs and that it would fall into sin. And he says, but Lord, when we do fall into sin, not if, but when we do fall into sin, uh, and we turn and pray towards this temple, Lord, hear and Lord, forgive. So at this point in history, two things were recognized. Number one, God kept the old covenant. Number two, the people didn't do a very good job of keeping the old covenant. By now, there was enough history to see that Israel really struggled to keep this covenant and really only did so twice. Um, for any length of time, under the time of Joshua and under the time of David and Solomon, uh, where there were long periods where this covenant worked really well because the people did what they were supposed to do. And during those times, we see tremendous blessings, right? Under Joshua, I mean, phenomenal blessings of God. And under Solomon, David and Solomon, phenomenal blessings of God. And everything in between that was up, down, up, down, all around a mess, uh, because they could never sustain their part of the covenant for very long. They might do it for a couple decades, a little revival under this king or that judge, but uh, boom, then they'd go down again. So the covenant was fulfilled under Joshua and under Solomon. Now, um, what ultimately happened, of course, is that the overall performance of Israel in relationship to the covenant was one of failure. Uh, when you look at the total history from the time of, of, of Malachi uh, clear to the time of, of Exodus 19, uh, those 15, 1800 years, however long exactly it was, um, that the old covenant was in force, um, the overall assessment of it is they failed. Um, and that's why a new covenant had to be made because this one just didn't work because one of the parties couldn't perform. At least they couldn't perform consistently. Now, <clears throat> let's turn please to uh, Hebrews chapter 8. Let's go back to chapter 7, Hebrews 7. Speaking of Jesus, it says in verse 17, Hebrews 7, 17, For he testifies, that is God is testifying in Psalm 110, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay. For there is truly a disannulling of the commandment 
going before, namely the Old Covenant, because of the weakness and the unprofitableness of it. For the Old Covenant made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did, namely the New Covenant, by which we draw near unto God. Verse 22, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better covenant. Now let's go to chapter 8 and verse 7. Chapter 8 and verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, namely the old covenant that we're studying right now, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, that is the children of Israel and their covenant keeping, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now this is a quotation of Jeremiah 31, 31. Verse 9, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That's the old covenant that we're studying right now. Because they continued not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord. What's God's assessment of Israel's overall keeping of the old covenant? Answer is, they continued not in my covenant. The covenant was weak and unprofitable because of the people. It says in verse 7, verse 8, for finding fault with them, with the people. And see, the weakness of the covenant and the unprofitableness of the covenant lie in the fact that one of the parties with whom it was made couldn't keep its end of the bargain. And so he says, they continued not in my covenant, and therefore I regarded them not. Now, what did our memory verse say today? Right. It says, go ahead and read it, Caleb. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. So God had respect unto them in relationship to the Abrahamic covenant. What does he say in relationship to the old covenant? He says, I regarded them not. So he didn't have respect unto them with reference to keeping the old covenant. Okay? All right. So um, that's the terms. Um, and that's Israel's failure to keep those terms. All right, next time we'll talk about the features and hopefully bring chapter 8 to a conclusion. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, your covenants that you make with your people. And Lord, help us to understand them and help us to find tremendous comfort in them and through them. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.